Namo Mio Horenge Kyo, Namo Mio Horenge Kyo, Namo Mio Horenge Kyo. Hello, good friends. I hope you're in good health, secure. Thank you for being here for your practice. And as always, for your support, like and subscribe. It's a Bodhisattva Act, helps spread this resource to more people. That's what this is all about for confidence and uh, assuredness in our practice. Um, we are reading the uh, Lotus Sutra once again, this time the Leon Hurwitz translation from the uh, 70s, um, known throughout the ac several academic circles, not all, but you know, that's how humans are. Certainly the academic circles that I have found uh, very informative, Jacqueline Stone and uh, um, uh, Mr. Uh, I want to say Rodriguez, but I'm not sure that's right. Um, anyway, scholars, modern scholars, see uh, Leon Hurwitz as probably the most accurate uh, English or Western translation of Kumarajiva's Chinese translation. So uh, much as languages and cultures change through millennia, uh, the way words are formed and what they represent, they're different. So uh, the best we can hope for in these translations, uh, no matter how uh, you know, scholarly they may be, uh, they are, first of all, uh, transliterations from uh, copying down of words from oral traditions. So there's, there's one first step from Prakrit to myriad other languages, right? Pali being only one of them, Sanskrit being a formal one of them, and then there's Gandhari and uh, other, it, it, all dialects. And by the time you get to the modern languages, right, French and English and so forth, even between our languages today, uh, we have, well, what's the word for that? Well, we can approximate it with this. So the words aren't the thing we need to latch on to, which Shakyamuni told his followers the same thing. What's important is to grasp the meaning. And so this is why the teachings took the form of parables and similes and, and um, uh, expedient means, right? Skillful devices, ways of reaching people where they are in their experience of the world and moving them toward the same goal, Buddha. Right? It's something you learn when you travel. Uh, if you do any traveling, even within the country, but especially outside the country, uh, if you spend any time with another culture, you'll find, sure, there are language differences and maybe the foods are different and so forth. But you know what? In the final analysis, we eat grains and vegetables and meats, and there's not that much, and fish, and the those are those animals all over the world. The preparations may be different. The local spices may be different. And the same is true of our human lives. How do we handle relationships? How do we handle um, the uh, societal constructs of our soci societies, right? How do we uh, uh, meet a, a boy or a girl and how do we introduce ourselves, if we're introduced, to the parents? How do we get permissions? All of those things, they're all the same 
issues, but different cultures, different languages, different societies, even within our own country, right? The way we conduct ourselves amongst one another is indicative of certain permissible things, non-permissible. How are those judgments made? That's what's interesting is we're all dealing with the same basic issues, albeit differently. We have different ideas, different rules, different concerns, right? So no different with learning stuff, right? The idea that there's only one way to teach math, for instance, um, it's kind of nonsensical, isn't it? Because we all learn differently. That's why for some people, the same teaching program can be super fun and easy. And for others, the exact same teaching program can be elusive and frustrating and difficult. It's not because one's smarter and the other is stupid. It's because we learn differently. That's the main difference. And so this is what we're dealing with with Buddhist transcriptions of these texts and teachings. Please look for the meaning and don't get hung up on, oh, he said that word, that must mean this, this, this. Mm. Yes, language is important and it has its rules and it helps us to understand, but see past the initial superficial understanding and see the current underneath. And that's what we're trying to do with this resource, the website, the books, all of it, the podcasts. Hmm? All right, so we've heard another parable, but this time from uh, the senior monks who have who are in great appreciation at this moment because they're starting to get that what Shakyamuni is teaching in this Lotus Sutra, it's a paradigm shift. It's far beyond what they've heard before. And in fact, they're realizing now that really he's been heading here all along and really teaching this same truth since the start, but it wasn't apparent. It wasn't apparent to them. And they've been studying for years and years and years with him. And they just wrote themselves off as, well, that's something we'll either never achieve or when we do, it'll be some distant future in another place. And they just kind of condemned themselves to, this is as high, this is as far as we can go. We can be perennial students. We can learn and we can see what it looks like to be liberated from our cravings and clinging. But we're going to always be in samsara. Uh, enlightenment is something that's just not going to come to us in this life. It's just never going to happen. But we can see what it looks like. We can get darn close. And that's enough. But suddenly they realize, wait a minute. It's been here all along. We have cut ourselves off from it. What silly beasts. What dummies. Oh. So Shakyamuni's just turned the attic light on and said, look, it's been here all along. All you had to do was do it. Enlightenment is yours now. And they're all like, so they have this parable of the son who leaves his father and He's been gone so long, he's even forgotten anything like family life and has 
basically condemned himself to a life of poverty and thinking that that's all he's worth. And the father has had, upon encountering him again, has had to fool him slowly to draw him into the fold. And the father has come down in his stature to, as to not be intimidating to him, to come down to his level and slowly has given his son, who he doesn't know is his son, he knows, but his son doesn't know, more value, more self-respect to the point where as the father is finally starting to die, he bequeaths to this son, who he calls son, just from his loving relationship with him. By the way, you are my true son, and all of this will be yours when I die. Now the son has got enough value for himself that he's willing to accept this, and it blows his mind. I've been avoiding this all along, and really, it's a beautiful, beneficial thing that I can do much good with. Oh, how have I led my life? But instead of being despondent about all the time he wastes, wasted, he's now much more able to appreciate the gift that he has from his father, something he's turned away his whole life, yeah? So now Mahakachapa is going to tell this story again, but in a gatha, a concise gatha. All right, so here we go. This day we, having heard the Buddha's spoken teaching, dance for joy. That we have gained something we had never had before. We had the opportunity for it, but we never embraced it, right? For the Buddha says that voice hearers, shravakas, world of learning, right? Shall be able to become Buddhas. She never said that before. And a cluster of unexcelled gems, unsought by us, has come into our possession of its own accord. We didn't see this coming. And yet, this is what we've been working for all along. <laughs> for example, suppose that a boy, young and knowing nothing, forsaking his father and running away, arrived far off in another land, then went about through several countries for more than 50 years. 50 years. His father, tormented by grief, sought him in all four directions. Then, when weary with the search, he settled in a city where he built himself a house in which he amused himself with objects of the five desires, the skandhas, right? The house was great and rich, having much gold and silver, giant clamshell and agate, pearl and vairuda, elephants and horses, cattle and sheep, handcarts and palanquins, carriages and chariots, workmen to tend the fields, and many dependent people. The profits that flowed out and in extended to other countries as well. Merchants and traders were everywhere. There was no place without them. He became very important, this father, yeah? Multitudes in the thousands of myriads of millions surrounded him in deference, and by kings he was constantly loved and cherished. Mm, one of the elite, no doubt. 
Assembled ministers and powerful clans alike all revered and valued him. For this reason, those who came and went were numerous. Such were his powers and wealth. Having great power, but being of advanced and decrepit age, he was all the more grief-stricken in recalling his son. Uh, morn and night, he thought, when my time to die was about to arrive, my stupid son left me. Now, more than fifty years since, my treasure houses and everything in them, what shall I do with them? At that time, the poor son, in quest of food and clothing, was going from metropolis to metropolis, traveling aimlessly, just looking for food and, food and work and sustenance, yeah? From kingdom to kingdom, now getting something, now not. Hungry, weak, and emaciated, as he was, he developed scabs on his body. Eventually, in his passage, he reached the city in which his father dwelt. And going about for hire, at length arrived at his father's house, not knowing. At that time, the great man within his gateway had erected a great jeweled tent where he was seated on a lion throne, surrounded by dependents and attended by various persons, among them those who reckoned the quantity of gold, silver, and gems, and of the goods given out and taken in, who recorded them in ledgers. The poor son, seeing his father, rich and powerful, stern and majestic, thought, huh, this must be a king, or the equal of a king, in his consternation, he wondered why he had he come hither. Repeatedly, he thought, if I stay long, I may be driven or coerced to work. Right? These are powerful people. They see me out here. They'll make me a slave. When he had had these thoughts, he ran off in haste. I got to get out of here. Inquiring about poor villages, for he wished to go to one to work for hire. The great man at this time, seated on the lion throne, and seeing his son in the distance, said, hey, hey, that's my son. I don't know how he recognized him after 50 years, but that's not the point of the story, is it? Silently, he recognized him. Oh. Accordingly, he commanded messengers to overtake him and bring him back. The poor son cried out in alarm in sore, um, in sore distraction, falling to the ground, if these men have seized me, it must mean that I'm going to be killed. Of what use are food and clothing if they bring me to this? The great man knew his son to be foolish and mean. He will not believe my words. He will not believe this is his father. Accordingly, resorting to an expedient device, he sent other men, squint-eyed and crouched over, persons of no imposing appearance, and told them, you may talk to him, saying, we will hire you to clear away dung and other filth, giving you a double wage. The poor son, hearing this and following them joyfully, oh, what opportunity after that near-death experience, yeah? At their behest, he cleared away dung and filth and cleaned the rooms and apartments. The great man, through his window, constantly watched his son, yeah? 
and was mindful that the son, being foolish and inferior by choice, enjoyed doing menial work. Ugh, it hurts his heart, but he understands he doesn't want to lose him again, right? Thereupon the great man, putting on torn and filthy garments and taking in hand a dung shovel, went to his son's workplace, right? lowering himself to his son's level where by resort to an expedient device approaching him and talking to him, he caused him to work with diligence. I have already increased your wage, he said, and anointed your feet with oil. Your food and drink suffice, and your bedding is thick and warm. He spoke to him sternly. You must work hard. He also used gentle words. You are like my son. So he befriended his son as a supervisor, say, of just higher rank but equal footing in the society so his son would accept that this could be his boss, right? The great man, being wise, eventually permitted him to enter and leave throughout 20 years of doing this. Having charge of the great man's household affairs, he showed him the, the gold and the silver, his pearl and shaktika, Look at this over here. Look what this guy has over here. Isn't this amazing? Building the confidence and his confidences with the son to this older man, not knowing that it's his father and his father playing the role of a confidant who's taking care of him, kind of what his son grows to enjoy and respect, like he's maybe deserving of that, you know. The income and expenditure of his various things, making him responsible for them all. He gradually helps the son take over a lot of these tasks that he's playing as though they've been given to him as better menial tasks, but menial nonetheless. Take care of my wealth, right? But he's not the, the wealthy guy. No, you don't need to fear him. Hmm. Yet the son still lived outside the gate. Dwelling in the grass hut and thinking of his own poor state. I have none of these things. The father, knowing that his son's thoughts were at, le at last broad and great, at least he's accepting of what this is. He doesn't think he's deserving of it, but he's handling the, the warehouse and putting things in their place. He's learning to manage, you know. And wishing to give him his treasure, straightway assembled his kin, the king and his ministers, satriyas and householders, and in this great multitude said, This is my son. Since he forsook me and went away, fifty years have passed. Well, seventy now, right? Because didn't he spend twenty years working with him in the dump? You see how you can't get too preoccupied with accuracy or time in Buddhism, because time is a device in Buddhism. It just means a long time, hmm? like a kalpa, a very long sense of time. Since I saw my son come back, it has already been 20 years. Okay, he, got, he caught up to it. Formerly, in such and such a city, I lost this son, going in search of him. At length, I came to this place. Everything I have, my houses my vas and my vassals, I make over entirely to him to do with as he pleases. 
The son, who still had a mind his former poverty and his lowly ambitions, and who now, in his father's presence, was the great recipient of precious gems, as well as of houses, apartments, and all manner of treasure, was overjoyed. I imagine he just started crying with joy, right? Oh, my goodness. This is all mine? To do with as I please? I never would have thought that I deserved all this. Having gained something he had never had before. Sound familiar? The Buddha also in this way, knowing our fondness for the petty, has never before told us, you shall become Buddhas. On the contrary, he told us to achieve freedom from outflows, to achieve the lesser vehicle, arhat, shavakas, prachaka Buddhas, to be voice-hearing disciples. The Buddha commanded us to say of the unexcelled path that they who cultivate it shall be able to achieve Buddhahood one day. We, receiving the Buddha's instructions for the great bodhisattva's sakes, people we can't even imagine being, by invoking causes and conditions, a variety of parables and diver, nah, diverse, that's not spelled right, it says divers, I think it's supposed to be diverse words and phrases, Preach the unexcelled path. The Buddha's sons, hearing the Dharma from us, and day and night taking thought, engaged in cultivated practices. At that time, the Buddha straight away conferred on them this prophecy. In an age to come, you shall be able to become Buddhas. Of all Buddhas, this is the Dharma of the secret treasure house. Sorry about that. Merely for the bodhisattvas' sakes did we set forth these matters, not for our own sakes, preaching these essentials. They didn't understand that they were, in fact, acting as bodhisattvas. They didn't think they were esteemed or able to reach that. And in fact, Buddha told them they weren't because they weren't ready, right? Just like the son wouldn't have been ready. It thought it was going to be killed by these people. It would never have accepted that this was his father. Until he built some value up, learned how to manage things, learned what wealth looks like and how it wasn't something that would burn him or hurt him or, you know, whatever fantasies he had in his head. He became acclimated, more accepting. His thinking evolved. His capacity to understand and accept evolved. And then the father told him, along with everyone else, this is exactly what's happening in the story of the sutra, isn't it? The lotus. Just as that poor son was able to approach his father and, though responsible for his father's things, had no thought of taking them, so we thought we preached the jewel cash of the Buddha Dharma, had ourselves no hope for it in the same way. For us, personal extinction was thought to suffice, as long as we can get rid of our earthly mundane attachments. That'll be all we can accomplish, and that's a good thing. 
We understood only this, having no hold on anything else. What uh, Had we heard of cleansing Buddha lands and of teaching and converting the beings, we should have taken absolutely no pleasure, th pleasure therein. What is the reason? Well, all dharmas, without exception, are empty and quiescent, having no birth and no extinction. So what is there to take pride in, right? neither great nor small, having no outflows and no ado, with this mind in mind, we experienced no pleasure. Throughout the long night of time for Buddha knowledge, we had no craving or no attachment, nor yet any hope. That's kind of a nihilistic way to live, isn't it? On the contrary, where Dharma is concerned to ourselves, we said, this is the ultimate. Throughout the long night of time, having practiced and cultivated the Dharma of emptiness, we have contrived to shake off the three spheres and their ills of woe and anguish. You can also see from reading that where Nichiren took exception to the teachings of Zen. Yeah? We occupy our final bodies, right? They keep saying that. Nirvana with residue. Nirvana with residue. The Buddha teaches that the attainment of the path is no vain matter, yet we have already contrived by our practice to repay the Buddha's munificence. Woo, there's a word. Although we, for the sake of the Buddha's sons, preach the Bodhisattva Dharma, wherewith the Buddha path was to be sought, yet with respect to this Dharma, we never had any hopes. The teacher made a vow of indifference, for he, we, he knew our thoughts. He never urged us on by telling us that we should gain a real advantage. Just as the great rich man, knowing that his son's ambitions were low, by resort to the power of expedient device, mollified his feelings, and only then bequeathed to him all his treasure. The Buddha also in the same way, demonstrates rare things. By resort to the power of expedient devices, tames their thoughts, and only then teaches them great wisdom. We, this day, have gained something we have never had before. Something which, though, uh, though never before hoped for, we now have, has come into our possession of its own accord. As that poor son gained incalculable gems, so, O world-honored one, we have now gained the path and the fruit for the dharmas without outflows, having attained a pure eye, the Buddha eye. Throughout the long night of time, we have kept the Buddha's pure dis discipline, but only this day have we gained its fruit its retribution, its repercussion. In the midst of the dharmas of the Dharma king, long having cultivated Brahman conduct, now we have gained something without outflows, a great unexcelled fruit. We now are truly voice hearers, taking the voice of the Buddha path and causing all to hear it 
We now are true Arhants, since among the various worlds as gods, men's, Maras, and Brahmas, everywhere in their midst we are entitled to receive offerings. The world-honored one, in this his great loving-kindness, uses a rare thing, teaching and converting us with compassion to afford us profit, and incalculable millions of kalpas who could repay this were he to sacrifice his hands and feet do obeisance with his head bowed and make sundry offerings no one could repay this were one to receive him on the crown of one's head carry him on both shoulders for kalpas numerous as the ganges's sands exhausting one's thoughts in difference were one further to make use of lovely delicacies of garments adorned with incalculable gems and of various kinds of bedding and assorted broths and medicines, were one with oxhead candanas and precious gems to erect a stupid shrine. Spreading jeweled garments on the ground were one to take such things as these and use them to make offerings for kalpas numerous as Ganges' sands, still one could not repay him. The Buddhas have the rare, incalculable, limitless, inconceivable and ineffable power of great supernatural penetrations. Free of outflows and with no ado, the king of the dharmas can, for the sake of the inferior beings, patiently endure these things. For ordinary fellows taken with signs, he preaches in accord with what is peculiarly appropriate. The Buddhas, with respect to the dharmas, have achieved the utmost in self-mastery, knowing the beings' varied desires and predilections, as well as their strength of will. And in accord with what they can bear, by resort to incalculable parables, he preaches the dharma to them. In accord with the beings' wholesome roots, from former ages, their willingness to learn and practice. Also knowing who is ripe, who is ready, and who is unripe, still needs to learn more. When as a result of varied weighings and measurings, he knows these things with discrimination, then for the path of the one vehicle, in accord with what is peculiarly appropriate, he preaches three. And that's the end of the second scroll. So, what was the point of that whole chapter? Simple? Convoluted? Complex? Let me know in the comments what you think. I think it's pretty simple. It's basically saying, once again, in a different way, what I've been teaching for over 40 years... It's been the truth. It has been the truth. But it hasn't been the truth explained as I experience it, as I know it, as ultimately anyone can experience it, because we all have the potential. But if I'd have told you that 40 years ago, you'd have looked at me like I was some kind of magician, some soothsayer, some bizarre kook. So I had to teach you this truth 
to the way that you were familiar with the world and slowly move you toward, like the son who thought he was only a lowly subject and would never amount to any more. The more work he gave him, the more son, the son thought, well, I can match that and I can achieve something, although in my lowly state, and he'd be rewarded. And slowly but surely, the son gained confidence in himself, right? This is the story of the teaching of Buddhism. These different levels of Buddhism, all teaching the same truth, but to the capacity of those particular people in their particular time, region, in language they could all were familiar with, right, and understand. But now when he gets to the Lotus Sutra, all this pomp and circumstance of the first few chapters is about, okay, I'm not denying anything I've said. It's all true. But what you're now going to hear, what I'm now going to preach, the ultimate. It's the way I did this, basically. It's the way all who care to attain Buddhahood, can and will do it. And only now, after learning all of this stuff for over 40 years, can you listen to me, actually hear what I'm saying, and believe it. That's why the chapter is called Believing and Understanding. Make sense? All right. And with that... I don't know where we are. Ah, we're not bad time-wise. I have to thank you once again for your practice, for listening. Don't forget, you can get these as a podcast free. So if you prefer to listen that way, if you learn better that way, whatever works for you, that I can provide the books, the e-books, the print books, the, the, uh, the mandala, right? All the links are below. And as always, I have tremendous gratitude for you who not just buy books and so forth, but those of you who are patrons, either through Patreon or direct through PayPal, your support is incalculably valuable. And we're all benefiting from that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. In the meantime, do yourself a kindness as well as everyone else. If you're kind to yourself, you're more likely to be kind to others, don't you think? Makes sense? One of those kindnesses is take care of your health. Keep your practice strong. Savor it. Hmm? All right. I had something I wanted to add today, but now it slips my mind. So, oh well. Uh, maybe I'll remember it tomorrow. In the meantime, again, take care of your health. Be kind. And I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Oh.